0: Welcome to this panel. As you know, you're here for the incredible documentary, Salt in My Soul. This film is remarkable. It's uh, obviously it's getting amazing reviews. And it was the number one documentary on Apple and Amazon. And in a little bit, we're going to play the trailer. And we're going to have a discussion with the film's (laughs) director, Will Battersby. Will is there. And we've got, of course, Mallory's mother, Diane, brother, Micah. Hi, Micah. We've got, of course, from the movie, her friend Maya Humes and the head of the Boomer Esiason Foundation, Gunnar Esiason, himself a writer and a cystic fibrosis patient. Hi, Gunnar. How are you? Big, big fan of your dad's from back in the day. He really knew how to throw a football. Also, we've got uh, with us today two leading phage Scientists, we're going to learn more about this groundbreaking treatment. Uh, It's a treatment that Mallory received in the final days of her life. And we have with us Stephanie Strathdee from UCSD and Ben Chan from Yale. Hi, welcome, welcome everyone. So, during the panel, you can post your questions in the chat and um, I will monitor them along with the director, Will, and we'll get to as many as we can. The film uh, has so many areas. For discussion from invisible illnesses to mental health to the environment, obviously CF, superbugs, we'll touch on many of those today. So without further ado, let us roll the trailer and we will get started.
1: I'm not necessarily the most fearful of death. But I do think that when <laughs> you leave people behind that have fought so hard to keep you alive, I think that would be devastating.
2: When all my hopes God, love yeah.
1: oh. Hi, I'm Mallory Smith and I have cystic fibrosis. She would write in it all the time. I wanted to read it, and she would not allow me. Every single decision that I make has a life or death significance to it. Um, And that's something that I don't want to convey, because I don't want people looking at me and pitying me or being scared that I'm gonna drop dead or anything like that. She, you know, took out her opinions and her feelings on her journal, clearly, and then tried to just live a happy life. Uh, Things seem to be getting worse instead of better. Seems like I'm resistant to the antibiotics. My boyfriend just left town and I miss him. That's all. I feel like people with CF are privy to secrets it takes most other people a lifetime to understand how lucky we are to be alive. That we can leave behind a legacy when we go that will impact others. simple things are often the most beautiful that love and happiness are the most important things to strive for powerful wonderful so i
0: encourage all of us here on this panel to make this really as much of a conversation as QA. uh it's let's keep it informal let's keep it conversational i'll ask a couple of questions to kind of keep things going but you all knew mallory or you were touched by her life in some way so Please feel free to jump in at any time, but we're going to start with the director with Will. Hi, Will. You there? Hi, Rain. I'm here. Excellent. So how did you get involved with making this film?
3: Right. So uh, one of the producers, Richard Abate, sent me uh, Mallory's uh, book, gosh, uh, towards the end of 2019. And um, I read it in one sitting and was just completely blown away. You know, I I haven't been touched by chronic illness. And, you know, I I realized that it throws up, You you know, everybody who's touched by it or goes through it you know, it throws up so many extraordinary themes, important themes, and, you know, Mallory's story kind of, in addition to that, threw up, you know, the, the themes of environmentalism, you know, which is incredibly important to me, and the, the art of writing too, right? That's, you know, and I realised that, you know, if we had the material and we could craft... The story that we could potentially really, you know, touch on so many areas, and and initially too, I, I really started to I, I hoped that the footage was there to make a kind of classic coming of age story. You know, it, it's such a great sort of American genre that you know, gorgeous young girl she surfs right, she lives in California, and I sort of thought, oh, you know, how amazing to to make a coming of age story where you're protagonist is unfortunately dying right and and you kind of know that right i called richard immediately and said how how do i get involved with this how do i get to make this and he uh he put me on the phone with diane who grilled me several times over She's a fierce gatekeeper and and rightly so took me a while but i i persuaded her uh and um and i just you know i got my crew together and uh hopped on a plane and i mean i think it was was the fastest i've ever gone into production in my life after reading that book because i just knew I wanted to start making it. Um and then, you know, we we were incredibly fortunate. You know, we discovered, I mean for those who have seen the film, you know, there's an unbelievable treasure trove of material in it, you know, because not only did Mallory keep that, you know, the secret 2500 page memoir, the journal, but she also recorded hours of audio. You know, she was a she was a podcaster, but also recorded all of her outtakes and her drafts. So if you listen very carefully in the film, you'll hear in moments, you know, we've cut together pieces and you could sort of you can hear the background noises change because it's she's she's working on her material constantly. Yeah. And we just we dove right in. That's fantastic. And you dove right
0: in. So you've, you're you editing all of this incredible footage that you've found and voiceover, um, but you're also doing you know, talking heads with the, with the key people and trying to tell the story. What was your vision for the film? What was the story you were trying to tell and what were the challenges that you k- came up against in doing that?
3: I realized early on that I wanted Mallory to be the narrator of her own film. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because she has such a strong voice, you know, she has such, such a strong authorial voice in the book and I really wanted to try and translate that into the film so you know one of the big challenges was you know sifting through or you know I mean it, it was the challenge but the blessing right sifting through all of this material um and then you know with my brilliant editor April sort of starting to craft the story and I think you know we we had those moments where we thought ooh, you know we can you know we can stick it to an insurance company or we can you know stick it to the system and I realized that that ultimately might become a little bit boring for the audience. Um, So we really tried to stick to this story, right? This kind of beautiful story about family and love and, you know, how they respond to this. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in the end, the challenge I think was really being faithful to Mallory, you know, and I I did not know Mallory. So, you know, I was sort of getting to know her as we were, Going through this process. And in many ways, you know, the the lockdown was was a valuable thing for us, right? Because it gave us a lot more time and space. And, you know, um, and we were, you know, I was very careful to, Im- to involve Diane in it too, because you know, normally I wouldn't, you know, normally we would we would film, you know, I'd have my interview subjects, everything, we'd go away, we'd make the film, and I'd sort of probably show her some kind of very advanced rough cut. But I, my hunch in it was not to do that. And I think that was right. Um, so she continued to somewhat grill me, uh, but that was, you know, it, it gave us a lot um, and was, it was an incredibly moving process too, you know, because obviously Diane was still grieving. You know, we were making the film, I think Diane right two years after Mallory had passed away. So it was, it was an extraordinary process to go through for us. So, you know, a lot of challenges, but a lot of blessings.
0: Yeah. How did you decide what to include in the film? I mean, it, it seems that it's an interesting challenge that you're the film and the book are kind of in a dialogue. you know they're kind of in the same the same world. Is this a film of the book, or is this how do those two connect? How did you choose what to include?
3: Yeah, it, it's an excellent question, and I, I think at first, I thought it was an adaptation. And then I started to hear, uh, you know, doing doing the interviews was extraordinarily moving, right? Because everybody we talked to, everybody we interviewed was still grieving. And I, and I didn't really realize what the quality of that was until it was juxtaposed against Mallory's voice, because of course, you know, Mallory's voice is vibrant and full of life and she's talking in the present. And of course, all the interview subjects are talking in the past. So there's this, I find, you know, i i realize there's this extraordinary tension right and I think it creates that feeling of sort of slight unease and sort of not not bewilderment but you know curiosity for an audience where they're sort of right like you know Maya's talking in the past, Diane's talking in the past, Mike is talking in the past but Mallory's talking in the present so I tried very hard to you know not to kind of have kind of a harsh juxtaposition of that but to allow that to sort of exist and give it a little bit of space to breathe and to give you sort of those moments where you know again it's so many people have said to me oh I, you know I, I was sure that she wasn't going to pass away in this film right and I, and I find that devastatingly moving as a filmmaker because of course it's the first thing we actually say to the audience at the beginning of the film but yeah. it, it, i think again it speaks to mallory's spirit right that just that hope Right, and and it's it's been such a nice thing that the film is eliciting that hope. You know, even with the with the tragic outcome, that's, you know the inevitable outcome. You know, so I think in a way, I'd love to say that was completely conscious on my part. You know, it may have been Mallory guiding guiding our hands a little bit. I think.
0: And just so you know, Will, like you're among friends here. We all know each other, and you can just let the accent go. You don't need to.
3: <laughs> you don't. <laughs> so I can do my. I can just go full Brooklyn back to my roots. Yeah, exactly. Just let okay. the, you don't need. You're not
0: impressing anyone with the English accent. We don't. We're not like, oh, he's he must be a good director. We you've already made an amazing film, so just <laughs> let it go. Let's turn uh, to Micah. Uh, as everyone knows, Micah is is Mallory's brother, and so nice to see you. Nice to meet you. So. Tell me about this experience. What was it like, you know, all of a sudden there's this book, this secret, hidden, locked away, password-protected book. What was that like, having that dropped in your lap? And uh, how was that reading it? And was there anything in it that surprised you?
4: I think just what surprised me the most was the scope and magnitude of what she left behind. And it was it was really bittersweet. I mean, it was really, it was really great to read and relive so many memories and get some insight into how she lived but it was really challenging as well i think it brought a lot of brought a lot of like eyes and attention and people reaching out with uh you know reaching out to see how i'm doing and it was you know a little bit overwhelming at times Mm. but i still read you know i try to read one or two little sections from the book every day it actually took me you know it took me about a year of the book being out to like read it all the way through it just was tough for me to go there yeah it must've been. And, and anything surprise
0: you in the book? Uh,
4: the level of detail by which she experienced the world, I think was the most profound for me. Um, everything, little things that I thought nothing of, she would have pages and pages of written about. Mm, amazing. Um, yeah. She was, she was just so, so incredibly like mindful and aware of her surroundings and, remembered all the really little details about things.
5: And
0: why do you think she was doing this book? Why Why do you think she was... What was she expressing by having kind of this secret memoir going and all the tens of thousands of pages going throughout her life?
4: Uh, I think it well, a lot of it was a way for her to kind of emotionally vent about a really just an awful hand that she was dealt. I think it was a way for her to kind of just lay it all on the line, knowing that she doesn't have to like sit around with her friends being sad all the time. And I think it was, it was really beneficial. Like Talia mentioned in the film, just to kind of take her thoughts out on the journal and then try to live a normal life.
0: One thing that was mentioned in the film and was, and, and mentioned earlier was how hard this must be on you to, and I know this is a sensitive subject, but being the healthy sibling and her kind of, and rightfully, taking up all this attention,
6: Yeah.
0: but that must have put you in a really difficult spot, and I'd, l- I'd just love to hear from your perspective of, you know, growing
4: up in this Mallory world. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> so I think, I think the biggest thing that's stuck with me through it is it kind of, I was like subconsciously conditioned to like put my own needs second, um, and it's, manifested itself in a lot of ways, you know, in relationships and friendships and professionally. And I kind of tend to not like ask for the things that I need or vocalize how I'm feeling. Just, it's just kind of from like the conditioning of that growing up. Mm, That's,
0: that's rough. Thank you so much. And we'll have more questions for Micah as, as we go along. Maya, I saw in the film, you, you guys were roommates at Stanford. And so you knew her early on when, her health issues weren't as bad and she was kind of at maximum health. What was that like? What was it like being her roommate?
2: It was so fun being her roommate. So we met freshman year and then sophomore year, we lived in a two room triple. So we had three beds in one room and then the other room and this, you, you could actually see it in the film. It was not a big room and we had twin beds in one room and then we all studied in the other room. And so that was the year, it was fun because that was the year I really got to know Mal and that was the year we became best friends. We were so similar and similar in personality, but also similar in the way we wanted to experience Stanford. So it was just, it was really fun. And we had a third roommate named Makiko who was was also just just always in the mix. And we we would love to host people in our room, as I said, and all of that. But sophomore year was also when she started to get, really sick so it was it was a mix of you know having so much fun and going out and her playing volleyball and having friends in our room and then also going to visit her in the hospital and realizing that she was getting admitted more regularly Mm. Um, and that was sort of the year that she was getting sicker at stanford
6: Hmm.
0: Is anyone else from Stanford on this thing? Do we know? Just out of curiosity? Do we know? We don't know. I, I just was saying, because I got rejected from Stanford, I was just I thought it would be a good opportunity to, it seems really appropriate to, anyway. Well, um, <laughs> I was, if, any, if any of the professors
3: are watching, we'll have them post and, you know, they're, I mean, I'm
0: kind of well yes. off,
3: like I could be
0: donating to the alumni. I've just said, we won't get into that. This is about Mallory. There it's might be out. some
2: people tuning in from Stanford, so.
0: Okay, all right. You
2: might have a chance to offend several this of us. A typical, you-
0: typical Hollywood narcissist, always <laughs> making it about me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it was like reading her book and hearing this the full arc of her story, and also talk a little bit about her environmentalism.
2: Yeah, so... Reading the book for me was was really difficult, as it was for my gun, as it was for for so many of us, because we were best friends. I mean, we talked about so much. We confide each other. We were hanging out all the time. We spent so much time together. And just to realize that sophomore year, in particular, that being the first time that I was really spending a lot of time with Mallory that we were doing all these things and, and experiencing college in the, the very typical college way. But at the same time, she was getting admitted to the hospital. And not only that, but she was going through so much internally. And so the book really sheds a lot of light on that. And so does the documentary. And so I think just being a close friend of hers, it's honestly really tough to, to hear about how much she was really dealing with alone and mm. she is honest about the fact that she wanted to keep so much of it in her journal and keep so much of it to herself because she wanted to live a full and normal life. And she wanted people to treat her like she could be healthy and like she could do things that everyone else was doing, but hearing in the documentary and and seeing in her journal that she was going through so much that she felt really isolated and that, you know she was really really scared was very very hard to read and so it was the layer of losing her of course and then also knowing that so much of what she went through was was not something that i was entirely aware of and so i just think it's it's a it's a real lesson for me reading that book because mallory being someone who was radiant and, you know, people would always talk about how happy she was and how she was always smiling and she was the warmest person. I have people who tell me who didn't know her that well at Stanford, who were just like, she was the kindest person. She was always welcoming. And so knowing that she had that externally, but was still going through so much. And I knew some of what she was going through, but it's just impossible to know everything. And so it just makes you really want to dig deeper with people that you're close to and make sure that you're constantly checking in and not stopping when they say, I'm okay. Like, are you really okay? You know, just checking in constantly I think is, is one of the the big takeaways for me and a lot of the friends that I've talked to. Yeah.
0: You were there kind of at the advent of her becoming an environmentalist. Uh, any, any thoughts there on that environmental work and how the connection between what she was dealing with, and environmentalism?
2: Yeah, I mean, at Stanford, she was incredibly involved in so many ways in creating and making that connection between the earth and taking care of the earth and taking care of her body. And really, I found it incredibly poetic and beautiful the way that she was able to bring that to life for people to bring to life what she was going through and to really connect it to her passion for the environment. I know this is in the film and in the book, but she had such a love for traveling and such a love for the outdoors. And it just weaved throughout what she studied and what she was passionate about. And so I think that the fact that we have the book and we, we have the documentary that really touch on that is incredibly special. And I feel like she was able to do so much in the 25 years that she was here to really push that forward.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you, Maya. Gunnar. Hi, how are you? Nice to, nice to see you. Likewise. Thanks
7: for, thanks for doing this, Ray.
0: Yeah, of course. So you're the cystic fibrosis sufferer here. And I know you, I, I can't even imagine what it was like to read her book and identify with Mallory in so many different ways, even beyond the disease, mental health, the perspective it gives you and the, the countless frustrations as well and is that true your and your wedding they had a, uh, a a quote from it from the on mo- the book
7: we did you know I, I first read salt to my soul several weeks into the, the the clinical trial that I was participating in for the for the drug that ended up becoming tricapta and My health was exploding in such a good way at the time. And it was a really, it was almost an out-of-body experience to be reading Salt of My Soul, Mallory's words about what cystic fibrosis has classically been like for so many of us. And the way that I described the book is that she was able to put into words what we... Think as people with CF, right? She had a way of articulating uh, the lived experience of CF, and I had actually been a Mallory fan, following her blogs um, oh. on the internet for a number of years before the book came out. Uh, I got to meet Diane uh, at the New York Public Library uh, on mm. during her during her book tour. But yeah, it, the book really touched me. My now wife, my both of my parents have read it, I'm sister, and it's just a remarkable. Testament to what cystic fibrosis has long been, and I, my wife and I, we wanted that to be part of our wedding, and we had a, a reading from Salt to My Soul as a centerpiece to the wedding. Uh, I can, I can, I can tell you, Diane, that quite a few people probably bought the book after the wedding, so uh, I haven't seen my commission quite yet. I know that uh, the book sales were definitely nudged in the right direction after it.
0: And I, and tell me about this drug Trifecta. I'd been reading a little bit about this in preparation, and there was a lot of references to it, but I don't know anything about it.
7: Yeah, Trikafta. So it, it corrects the underlying uh, protein dysfunction, the heart of cystic fibrosis. It's programmed for about 90% of uh, CF patients. Mm. And it's essentially transformed the condition overnight. The experience that Mallory describes is one that I very much lived myself in my early to mid-20s. Most mornings, getting from the bedroom to the bathroom uh, to yeah. the brush my teeth was a real struggle, right? I experienced the, the deep watery cough, the fevers, the chronic infections. I spent, you know, cumulative year on IV antibiotics, for for quite a few time for over quite a few years and I think what TriCapta has really done is is it's made cystic fibrosis largely a manageable condition for a lot of people, right? There's still a small portion of the patient population that requires uh, new innovative therapies, but one thing that we all require across the board are novel antibiotics or novel yeah. antimicrobials. And uh, I think and that's and what-
0: that's what you're doing with the foundation too is addressing those super bugs.
7: Yeah, and you know, thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, one of our main advocacy points is really bringing awareness to. Uh, the market dysfunctions that are preventing novel antibiotics from making it from the test tube to patients. And uh, I know we're excited to have two scientists on the call here talking about uh, a lot of that work. The The story of cystic fibrosis is changing. We're sort of in that golden era of, uh, of drug development and innovation, but there's still a long way to go for, for a lot of people who don't quite have uh, the answer that Trikafta is providing for a lot of people. The commitment is as deep to, you know, those remaining 10 or 10% or so of patients as, as it ever was to everyone living with CF. It's a, it's a dynamic time in, in CF and still have a long way to go, though.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the scientists. We've got them here, Ben and Stephanie. Dr. Ben, Dr. Stephanie. I'm going to assume they're doctors. I don't know. Let's
3: hope. Let's hope.
0: <laughs> okay. Stephanie, we're talking about phage therapy, phage treatment. I do know for people watching, it does involve it involves poop, okay? Just It involves poop, so don't Don't be freaked out if some of the conversation goes that way. But Stephanie, tell us, can you give us some background on how you came to study phages and how you first met the Smith family?
6: Yeah, well, it's a very unusual way to meet somebody. I actually never met Mallory. um, And indirectly, I was introduced to Mark and Diane when Mallory had her double lung transplant And her new lungs are being attacked by Burkholderia sepatia, which is a nasty superbug. My husband had a superbug infection, and he almost died. He luckily was able to get phage therapy. Um, I came up with the idea after researching it on the internet. I had... Researchers at UC San Diego and a global village of researchers, including Ben, around the world, who helped get him phage therapy in time to save his life. And the story went viral. And Mark heard about it and reached out to me. And I went to Twitter to try to crowdsource phage for Mallory. And that was actually in the film. And, um, we didn't make it quite in time, but phage have so much promise, not just for CF patients who are battling superbugs because they've been exposed to so many antibiotics, but anybody who gets a superbug infection, you know, these days antimicrobial resistance is the next pandemic. By the year 2050, one person every three seconds is going to be dying of a superbug. So enough stats, but it's it's a serious problem. And and these phage are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. They're found in everywhere. Um, They're the most oldest and populous organism on the planet and a great place to find the perfect predator, if you will, is in poop because where there's a um, a lot of bacteria in poop. So there's a lot of phage there too. And so I can say that my husband is full of, you know what, (laughs) 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 saved his life.
0: Ben, can you tell us, thank you so much, Stephanie. Ben, can you tell us what compassionate use is? What is the status of phage therapy right now? Is it being made more broadly available? Tell us what's
5: up with that. Sure. So uh, first, the status of phage therapy is it's being evaluated in clinical trials right now, a few in the US and in CF where we're actually running one here, not in my home, but at the university. And so we're enrolling now. You can look it up on clinicaltrials.gov. The status of of compassionate care and and what is it is that it's where you you go to a you know go for a treatment of maybe last resort right so in the case of phage therapy as compassionate use it's where standard of care is not doing anything the last line of antibiotics might not be doing anything um, and so and you're in a rough place and so you can you can go to compassionate use which is where your physician. Um, contacts the FDA about getting, say, for example, phage therapy, and then, you know, with all the appropriate approvals with the, the hospital and the FDA, um, you can proceed with this experimental treatment before it's formally approved by the FDA. And that's what we're doing here um, in addition to the clinical trial. Got it. Great.
0: Diane, you've been so active in, obviously, there's so many questions to ask you, but I think your story was so beautifully told in the film. And your passion for Mallory, not just her story, but her message. And now, you know, turning toward solutions. How are you? What's up with you and Mark? And what, do you, what are you working on now?
8: Well, I would say I split my time in this world in two ways. First, using Mallory's voice, her story, her words, what she did over 10 years to try to help others. And there's not a day that goes by that A lot of people don't reach out and talk about that. So I continue to share her story with the goal of helping people understand as patients that they should feel empowered, as caregivers, mothers, fathers, siblings, that they should speak up. And then I spent a lot of time fundraising and raising awareness for phage therapy. When I started on my book tour in 2019 in March, not one person in any of the audiences I'd spoken to had heard of phage therapy. I've now given more than 200 talks in hospitals and medical centers across the country. And every time I speak to new groups, I'm shocked at how few people know about it. Now that Yale has formalized its center and now that Stephanie's group at UCSD is doing a trial and Mayo clinic and Baylor in Texas, and there's a group of researchers called phage. I think they do phage Friday clubhouse. I think that that's starting to change and people are starting to understand. And actually I credit Gunner when we showed him the film with suggesting that this film could introduce the subject of antimicrobial resistance, which leads to superbugs, making this a mainstream story, using this film, using storytelling as a device to raise awareness for this critical treatment that is desperately needed. And my personal interest started because of Mallory. But now that I I'm in touch with people every day who have superbugs in different directions for different reasons, whether it's prosthetics, or they went on a trip, or whether it's a soldier who's contracted it abroad. We don't say that phage therapy is the answer and it's going to save people. What we say is it's worthy of further study. We need it for compassionate use when there's no other options. And we need to do these trials so that the FDA can approve it. So I'm very cognizant of my platform that I have, thanks to my daughter, Mallory. And I feel like she left me a roadmap and instead of me being curled up in a fetal position crying every day, which I do feel like doing, I'm propelled forward to try to bring this treatment to the attention of mainstream America and to raise money. I was so proud of the money that we were raising thinking we were doing so much good and then I was quickly educated in the fact that the money that we're raising is never going to be able to fund clinical trials. And in fact, we need millions. So my goal now is to raise awareness, to get the government to fund it through gunner and what they're doing through the Pasteur act and all these different ways that we can put pressure on different groups, cystic fibrosis foundation, all the people doing research to spend more money to research phage therapy. And so what we're doing with the money we raise is donating it for compassionate use in many instances and to sort of fund some of the expenses that go with the trial because nobody wants to fund that. And in fact, cases like Mallory, where it didn't save her life, but they learned upon autopsy that the phages had reached their target and they were starting to work, that the anecdotal information that we collect is super helpful. So I'm very, very focused on using Mallory's story for that as well.
0: Right. That's great. It should be noted that uh, Stephanie has a book, The Perfect Predator, about superbugs. So maybe we can say more about that later. And folks, if you have questions for the panelists, now's a good time to be putting them in the comments section. Love to hear your comments, but would love to hear even more. I'd love to hear your questions. And Diane, I guess uh, the qu- the final question before we get to um, the audience questions and audi- audience interactivity is, and what I was most struck by is... Mallory's kind of spiritual message at the heart of her writing, the incredible perspective that living each day as a miracle, as a gift, gives one. It's a tragedy and there is a gift and it's a gift that's important when it's shared, which she has shared and you have shared. But can you talk a little bit about that emotional, spiritual, soul shift that she provided in her story?
8: Well, I can speak for myself personally in that anytime there's something that I don't want to do or that seems challenging to me, I just think about the fact that Mallory led by example in her actions and the way she lived her life and also by the words that she took 10 years to record so diligently. And so, I feel like the shift comes from looking to her to guide me. And I do know from telling her story so many times over, and over I'm so happy Will created this beautiful film because as many people as I reached in three years, it pales in comparison to how many people, it seems, have seen the film already. So I'm really happy that there's all these different ways to share her message and her story. But I also think that her message is very simple, which is live happy. I also think the fact that she took the time to record this and allowed me to share it publicly is a reminder of what Maya was saying, I think, we all have to remember that people around us who may not us who may not tip their hand to show us what they're really thinking we're all struggling especially now with covid people have all kinds of mental health issues you don't always know them i mean that's the whole thing about invisible illness and so i do think that her story has shed a lot of light on that and has raised a lot of awareness for the suffering and the struggling that people no matter what their condition is are dealing with and some people who seem perfectly fine are just not and and that's a really important message as well.
0: Yeah. And I love that parallel between hidden illnesses and mental illness, because it's, we're in a mental illness pandemic as well as a COVID pandemic, especially with young people. And it's really sad and, and astonishing. And I hope that the panel will address that as well. Cause there, it's all, it's all related, but Will, I'm going to pass the mic over to you. I know you've got some questions that have come in and were sent in and,
3: I do, Um, I do. And and I will try and address, there's been lots of of comments, lots of questions. Um, One of the questions that we've we've all been asked several times, Rain, if you don't mind me turning it straight back over to you, is what what sort of what drove you, what inspired you to do this? Because, you know, I think it means an awful lot to people, you know, within the CF community, but also beyond that. Um, and I'd love you to, to address that if you don't mind.
0: You, it's really uh, you're making it sound like I'm doing so much. You know, I'm I'm here promoting a beautiful film and spending an hour and a half with some lovely and important people. So it's it's my privilege. There's a number of reasons. Uh, long ago, about ten or twelve years ago, I founded a, a digital media company called Soul Pancake, and we had a show on Soul Pancake called My Last Days, and it was a it was basically a show about Death and it was a show about what can we learn about life from those who are facing death. And it's the kind of show, and we had hundreds of millions of video views that you could never. I remember pitching it. I pitched it to MTV, and we showed the trailer and we gave our pitch, and the executives were weeping. Tears were pouring down their face. And we're like, So we're gonna do this show. And they're like, No, sorry. (laughs) We can't do a show about death. So I've always, I always feel like from a spiritual perspective, we have so much to learn about life from facing death, thinking about death, talking about death, being inspired by those that are facing death. It's part that, you know, it's something we all have in common. We're all going to get there and join Mallory one day or another might be another 50 or 60 years. It might be next week. We don't know. So, I'm really passionate about those stories. Uh, Justin Baldoni, who did Five Feet Apart, is a a good dear friend of mine, and he's the creator of that show. So as soon as the producer, Richard Abate, uh, approached me about this, I I really was all in. Because I I think that these stories are, are so important for us humans. And these kinds of stories have been around since the dawn of time since we were sitting around as cavemen.
3: Well, thank you. We, we all really appreciate it. Gunner. a question for you. Uh, what ways can we as CF patients get involved in raising awareness of CF and simply educating people about what CF is and why it's important to find better treatments and resources?
7: You know, I uh, appreciate the question. Listen, I, I think the thing that we take from this movie, right, is... Uh, that there is an impending superbug crisis, right? The Lancet published a paper uh, about two weeks ago that cited uh, AMR is already contributing to more than a million and a half deaths, and that's far fast. A million and a half deaths per year, and that's that's far quicker than I think uh, most leading public health experts kind of had anticipated. You know, I think the the responsibility that falls to people with CF here is that we have to generalize our experience with superbugs and highly resistant drug pathogens, antibiotic pathogens, uh, bacterial pathogens uh, to the general population, right? Most people will look at people with CF and say, okay, they have CF, they're going to deal with uh, chronic lung infections in ways that we never will. You know, the data just shows otherwise, right? Uh, You know, we have Ben here and and Stephanie will tell you uh, that, you know, they're, looking at people who are not living with CF or people who are coming out of surgery or people who are, you know, scraping their leg on a hike. And there's different issues that befall people that we need as people with CF and have lived in this quasi post-antibiotic era to talk about what that experience is like. And I know there's a lot of people with CF on this call, and a lot of us have been in a situation uh, where you've learned that an antibiotic is no longer effective. Uh, It's scary, it's lonely, and it's the kind of thing that no one should ever have to go through. Right, but the 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 fact of the matter is, you know, right now the way the U.S. reimburses drugs and drug development, they just just does not value antibiotics appropriately. And because of that, it's just, it's impossible to finance new ones, right? The antibiotics that we rely on today can trace them, you know, can we can trace them all the way back to the 1960s and, and, and penicillin, right? So uh, that tells us that, uh, that tells me at least that we're in the kind of place that's ripe for the picking and we need to uh, start charging, uh, start charging forward and start financing people like Ben and Stephanie on this call to start financing new options for us.
3: Here, here, Um, Micah and Maya, a joint question for you guys, um, which I think is really important. What's your best advice as sibling and peer to better support someone in your life with CF?
4: I would say be there during the tough moments. It sometimes can be easy, like when they're in the hospital or staying home doing treatments or anything like that to kind of put it out of sight, out of mind. And I would just say, yeah, I mean, you know, cherish every moment, be there, even if it's just going and visiting your friend or your sibling in the hospital or sending them a card, cherishing those that time you can spend with them. Maya, do you have anything you'd like to add?
2: I would say everything that Micah said and really asking how they want you to support them. Like, you know, for Mallory, I think that, again, one thing that she really wanted was to live her life fully, to live her life happily, and so she didn't want it to define her. And so, as much as I wish that I had known everything that she was going through, I also realized that that was a conscious choice on her part. So I think just making sure that you're constantly asking how you can help, how you can support, constantly checking in, and you know when your friend says that they're okay, just asking again and and making sure that you're not taking their answer just it okay so you know if i were to if i were to support someone i would want to make sure that i was just constantly asking what would be the best way to do it thank you thank you very much
3: diane there's a question here and it's interesting we've had a, had a few comments about your uh, your infamous no pity party quote <laughs> You know, and, and people were saying it sort of, you know, it worried them a little bit as a as a tactic. You know right. that they they feel like you know sharing emotions and you know you know being open with each other is is you know maybe may maybe a better tactic. But which sort of ties in with this question, which is you know, uh, do you think that certain family values or perspectives helped you give Mallory such a sense of purpose and positivity? And 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 I'd love you to talk because I know you and I have talked a lot about it. You know what what that no pity party what it did, like what 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 it what it did for you, what function it served in the family.
8: I have a lot of you know, I've had a lot of time with a lot of patients and what often happens is that people can fall into woe is me. They fall into it if they get a parking ticket. They fall into it if they don't get a grade that they want and extrap you know, take that and magnify it when you have disappointing losses when you have a health condition you're planning a ski trip and you have an exacerbation and you can't go, which actually happened to us. We were supposed to go with Micah and Mark and uh, the doctor said, no, it's too cold up there and your lungs are gonna constrict and you can't go. So what do you do? Do you say, woe is me or do you pivot immediately? And that's what the no pity party was really about, which is not that you're not supposed to feel those emotions but that you're not supposed to dwell on them and focus on the negative because the glass is always either half full or half empty. And I describe in the film that day where Mallory had been up for 24 hours. It was her third call for transplant. Her friends had flown in, or maybe it was the first one. And then when the lungs went to somebody else and she ended up not getting them. And what I remember so vividly, and I will carry this memory with me forever, was she said to me, Mom, I would never, ever have been able to have that meal with all my friends. And it was such a special moment because it was sort of this near miss with this, huge overwhelming operation and I think because of the tone that I set in the house she copied that and followed that and chose to live happy and chose not to really emote and we always tried to make the best of every day and if she was supposed to go to a party and she couldn't go because she got sick or she had to do extra treatments I would move the party to our house so that no pity party defined every single day it just meant don't dwell on what you don't have, think about what you do have. And I know I used to drive, and I'm sure Michael will remember the perspective lecture. I used to go to People magazine because they have that article where they would show some hero who's you know blind or has no legs, and they've climbed a mountain or do, done all these things. And I used to read those articles to both the kids, and I would say, you have to have perspective. Yeah, it's, you, what you have is difficult, but people have it worse. It's always worse. So as long as you're, you know, you you can figure out another way forward. So that's really what that was about. Thank you.
3: So we also I just wanna mention we have several comments about poop, Rain. Uh, thank you for eliciting those. Everyone basically uh, my favorite any of us with or taking care of a CF are not scared of poop. Okay. So I think we're in we're in good company for some poop gags. Um, well,
0: well speaking of poop though, I do wanna know specifically what is phage therapy and how does it work? It's I find it I find it fascinating and it has a fascinating history. When you read about it, like people were experimenting with it like a hundred years ago
3: or something. So Ben and Stephanie, you guys should take this.
6: Well, I can start, but I'll let Ben chime in uh, because uh, Ben is the bona fide, uh, you know, phage researcher. I just came by this because my husband nearly died and fell into it. But yes, phage were discovered over a hundred years ago. They had a strange history Uh, when penicillin came on the scene, phage was kind of forgotten because Phage are viruses that attack bacteria and they have to match to a specific bacteria. And so um, they're a bit finicky that way, but... Um, if you have a giant phage library that maps on to a giant superbug library, then it's it's actually relatively easy to source phage for many superbugs. And that's what Ben and I are actually working on. We're, our two centers, which are nonprofits, are collaborating together to build a giant phage library so that we don't have to go to Twitter to crowdsource phage for somebody like Mallory. We can actually go to the library. Ben goes to his, you know, walk-in, you know, fridge and pulls out, you know, a sample and then is able to kind of um, see oh yes this is going to match so and so's um, super bug and and it can be ready really quickly and when it matches it works really fast because you know phage multiply within the body as long as there's bacteria there that they match to and then they're just naturally eliminated by the body as well so um, correct me if i'm wrong in any way or chime in there ben you're the expert (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> <laughs> no i uh well no, Stephanie, you know nailed it it's really just a form of i guess personalized medicine where we're going and finding you know specific phages for someone's specific bacteria and we just match them um and you know treat an infection and, and like stephanie said it can work really quickly and the bigger the library the better and you know we're all working you know really collaboratively um, to try and build a really huge uh, phage library, so that you know we can respond really quickly. If 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 someone's really got a, a horrible infection, then we can respond and and get there. You know, hopefully within a week. Obviously with permission from the FDA and and, and all you know the regulatory stuff. But the goal would really be to just have a, a nice quick turnaround. And so.
3: Yeah and one question um, and I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, one of our wonderful uh, non-profit partners the, the Cystic Fibrosis Research Institute they and and the Boomer Science Foundation have been amazing partners for us but they added on to the question so What happens to the phage once it's no longer needed in the body? Sure, I can take that one. They just, they break, right? They fall apart. So they're just viruses that are just
5: drifting around. If there's no susceptible bacteria, um, they're just, they fall to pieces. So they're self-limiting. And someone has
0: asked, what is Ben's
5: nonprofit? Oh. Um, so I, I don't run a nonprofit. Um, I, I, we work at the phage oh. center here at Yale. At um, Yale. At the mm-hmm. university, yeah. So, But we're definitely a nonprofit. We don't charge anybody I su- anything. I suppose
0: people could always donate to Yale because Yale doesn't have much money. And,
6: yeah. and <laughs> ours at UCSD is called IPATH. It's the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics. Anybody with a superbug can contact us by email, either Ben or myself. Um, we often work collaboratively to find phage or purify phage for people. Um, it's ipath.ucsd.edu. You can, I, that, I wanna,
0: you can put that in the I, chat. And um, go ahead, Diane.
8: I want to say something. I want to make sure that we take a moment to mention Mark, Mallory's dad, and my husband. Because honestly, Stephanie saved her husband with a superbug. Ben was doing what he was doing in the lab. Things were happening, but it was Mark... Really in a desperate search to save his daughter, looking for any treatment he could, getting in contact with Stephanie, her sending out the tweet, and then Mark having this vision to treat patients with cystic fibrosis um, with phage therapy before their lungs deteriorate because lung transplant is not a great option, even in the best case scenario because you're on immunosuppressants. And so, Mark, if you're listening... Thank you for reigniting interest in this and putting all of us on a journey forward.
6: Well, we've all got to thank you, Diane. You have donated all the proceeds from Salt in My Soul, both the book and the movie, to Phage Therapy. And iPath and Ben's program and others have benefited. It's saving lives. So congratulations to you. Oh,
3: thank you. So we have a question uh, f- from a patient, uh, a CF patient, who is suffering from a superbug. They don't say specifically which, and they're wondering how they can be considered for compassionate use or inclusion in a clinical trial. I answer that one
5: hopefully um they could uh for clinical trial um you could send us an email uh mine's just b.chan at edu. you know if, if it's outside of the trial and you know everybody's on board including the fda obviously um we could try for compassionate use and i'd be happy to talk about that with them anytime um you could send an email or or text me 203 3235 um Hopefully that wasn't a mistake. Um, But yeah, anytime we can talk about it. All right.
8: I think we should add add one more thing into that. I think that everybody should tell their local cystic fibrosis center, their local chapter, their doctor, their clinic. We need to remind them that this is an important and viable treatment because I hear from parents all the time who say, I talked to my center. They haven't heard of it. They don't know about it. They don't believe in it. I think people need to put pressure on people to raise money, to give money, to spend money. We need to do a lot more because this is a really serious problem and it is not getting the attention or the funding that it deserves. And, and Gunnar, some,
3: somebody asked, and I think this sort of this chimes in with this, is what what do you feel the CF community has to teach the world? You know, beyond, I mean, obviously there's some science here, right, that we're getting into, but what would your answer be to that question
7: yeah you know i think the story of cystic fibrosis is one of remarkable transformation right you know you look at the the sort of the, the the scientific strategy the cf foundation has set forth for the for for the cf community and it's remarkable that they've understood the biology to the extent that they do and and that's really the story of transformation that i think people with cf can share with with the world and with other communities who are still looking for unmet medical needs I think the, the superbug in, in, in the AMR piece is a little different. It's one that can be generalized beyond the CF world. And I think, you know, for me, I'm the kind of person who really only has an antibiotic or two left in my drug arsenal, right? Uh, and when I was, you know, definitely at my sickest or when I was uh, sort of first starting to recover, um, you know, I was very much in the same kind of camp that Diane and Mark were for Mallory looking for any other options. And I remember when I actually found Ben at Yale, uh, because I'm from New York, not too far away, I took a ride up to him, I spit in a cup and I watched him kill my Pseudomonas with, uh, with phage. Uh, I have not inhaled it, but I've watched my Pseudomonas die in a cup, which is, which is pretty cool to, to, to kind of see. It's like a, a, you know, it's a little bit of like a mad scientist moment, which, you know, if you think of a mad scientist, you think of a guy that looks like Ben, right? Ben is the, the classic mad scientist. But, you know, I, I think what we all have to do as, as people with CF is we have to be loud in front of our policymakers, right? There are bipartisan uh, answers to the AMR issue, standing in front of Congress from the Disarm Act, which will increase reimbursement for new novel drugs, uh, novel antibiotics, and then the Pasteur Act, which actually will turn antibiotic drug development into something like a Netflix subscription, where, they, where the government will essentially buy, uh, buy drugs up front, with that and then leave them on the shelf and allow them to be used only when necessary. Both are great options, I think, and if you're really someone that's really genuinely interested in learning about the, the economics behind the antibiotic development, uh, behind the antibiotic market, uh, that's what I would consider doing: looking into both pasture and disarm, understanding how uh, they could affect you personally and affect uh, the antibiotic development space, and uh, and advocate for change. Right? that's you know, it's down to. Uh, The people of the United States, you know, in this country affect our policymakers here. You know, we're fortunate enough to have a democracy where, you know, you can get on the phone and and call a policymaker, right? We all have that power to do so.
0: I want to say as, and Will, I'll let you, Will and Diane have last thoughts here, but I just want to throw out, like, love to bring this around. We've been talking about phage therapy and policy and whatnot and science, and that's all great, but let's bring this back to Mallory and... Maya and Micah. What do you most remember about Mallory? What do you hope her? What, what do you What do you see her vision as? And what do you What do you carry with you
4: that you got from her as you live your life? I carry with her. I try to do my best to carry her generosity and perseverance. Um, I think those were her two. I mean, she had so many great. Characteristics, but I think those were really her two the two ones that stand out to me the most. Um, And I try to live a life that would make her proud.
6: She would be,
8: Micah. She would be.
2: I would say I carry just the funny, (laughs) crazy memories that I had with Mal. I mean, what I really want to convey is that, you know, not only was she this incredible person that you can get to know through the memoir, but she was funny and we would, you know, we were able to talk and talk and talk for hours about the most random things. She loved, I mean, she loved going on adventures. She loved hiking. She loved so many things with friends. And I just think that when I, you know, think about our friendship, I really take with me all the times when we were rolling around on the floor laughing or, you know, just being best friends and, and having so much in common. And so, I really hope that people are able to take that away as well, that she really lived life so fully and had so much joy along with a lot of the pain that she experienced. Having her as a close friend was was very, very inspiring and also just something that felt completely normal at the same time, right? Like she was just the kind of person that you wanted to give good news to. She was the kind of person that you wanted to ask for advice from, that you wanted to talk to boys about. You know, she just... She was an incredible friend and always put other people's stories and thoughts first, even while she was going through so much on her own. So I would say that's that's what I think about when I scroll through my photos and see photos of all the things that we did. Well, thank you, Maya.
3: And Rain, I just, again, want to reiterate how wonderful this was of you to do. Um, I think it's meant an awful lot to everybody. And, you know, you do an extraordinary amount of philanthropic work and, you know, your podcast is extraordinary and your interest in, you know, other people and the human soul is uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing to behold. So I think we all want to thank you for doing this.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor.
3: You know, I just wanted to say on a personal note, what a privilege it was for me to make this film. You know, I think this this has an extraordinary lesson for us in this time of, you know, as Rain says, a health pandemic, a, a mental health pandemic, you know, an environmental crisis, attacks on science. I think it's sort of an extraordinary story about love, family values, you know, and and a future and hope. And I think that's that's what we all need right now. So I think we should end it on that note. Thank you all. And thanks, everybody, for coming.